Welcome listeners in podcast land. Whether you're up to your neck in Christmas shopping lists or wading thigh high through piles of wrapping paper, or maybe you're wrist deep in a turkey with a fistful of stuffing, this is the Beyond Ring Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. Welcome all to episode 10, our season finale of season one. Although we are anticipating a shorter sort of post-season bonus episode, so stay tuned for that. But for now, Jesus Christ is both the focal point of the Christian faith and also the focus of this particular episode. And whilst the person of Jesus continues to be a person of immense intrigue and interest for both those of us inside the church and also for those outside the church, it's also true that Jesus and the various claims about who he is and his nature and our expected response Well, it's actually a huge part of the reason that many have left the church. Coming this Christmas, Jesus the Movie. In a world where stars move so slowly enough across the sky, they can guide wise men with GPS-like precision, is the story of one man. Hi, I'm Joseph. I'm just looking for some carpentry work. And one girl. It was the Holy Spirit. Do you actually expect me to believe that, Mary? Who've never had sex. Or so she says. Who together give birth to a super baby. A baby who refuses to give crying the time of day. I think there's something wrong with him. He's not a normal baby. Whilst crybabies prefer a cot, he reclines in an animal's feeding trough surrounded by cows and sheep. Because he's the Lamb of God, who's going to turn his enemies into lamb chops. Judo Jesus! He's going to kick Sin's ass whilst riding on an ass. He'll do cool party tricks with water. Hey, this is one! Multiplying loaves and fishes. Whoa, so many loaves, bro. Heck, he'll even walk on water because he can. And what's more, he did it all for you. If you thought Noah was a good movie, you're weird. This Christmas, stuff your stocking with Jesus the Movie. Based broadly on the book, which is somewhat based on the stories, which we think are based somewhat on the man. Judo Jesus' action toy sold separately. It's worth noting that the Jesus that we'll sing about this Christmas in carols painfully high for most of us males, and the Christ that's worshipped in churches on Sundays, is not actually the same Jesus who walked the earth. Now, that may be shocking for some to hear, may also be liberating for others. But in this episode, we're going to be looking at Jesus, but we're not seeking to offer you a better or more accurate version of Jesus, a a Jesus 2.0. Instead, we want to allow our guest, Dominic Crossan, to use the insights of history to, to sort of reconstruct the world that the person of Jesus lived in. And in doing that, and, and in suspending the Jesus of the carols and the hymns and the Hollywood remakes, we want to explore together what happens when we attempt to rehear him in his own time and in his own context. And then let's see, in going backwards, what we might learn going forwards. 
Christmas by Michael Runick. I see a twinkle in your eye, so this should be my Christmas star. And I would travel to your heart, the manger where the real things are. And I would find a mother there who holds you gently to her breast. A father to protect your peace, and by these things you shall be blessed. And you will always be reborn, and I would always see the star, and make the journey to your heart, the manger where the real things are. Jesus and I go fishing. I have to say, he isn't reeling them in like he does when he speaks. After sitting there for at least an hour, I say, Jesus, why, why don't you just command the water? Make it settle into quiet, furrowed fields and then walk across and pick out the fish like turnips. He just stares at the rippled dimple where his line meets the water with a little smile, shakes his head. Well, why not turn the water into wine? Get the fish drunk so they bob to the surface, freshly marinated. Or you could go old school, divide the waters like Moses and wander along the sediment seafood aisle. Or commandeer a whale to swallow a whole school and spit them out after three days of curing. Why not? Jesus turns to face me points his index finger at me, then pokes me in the forehead. Don't you know me at all, he says. Jesus draws a deep breath, gives a few gentle tugs on his rod and says, if you get something right in the first place, there's no need for a miracle. John Dominic Crossan, one of the world's leading historians of early Christianity, came to world attention through his work in a scholarly project called the Jesus Seminar in the 80s and 90s. The basic goal of the Jesus Seminar was to gather about 150 scholars to evaluate the historical evidence for the person of Jesus and for the words and teachings that were attributed to him. Famously, this group of scholars evaluated every line of the Gospels and voted on which ones they thought, in their scholarly opinion, could confidently be claimed as words spoken by the historical Jesus. They attempted, as much as is possible, to dust off the layers piled on top of this man from Galilee. The method and results of the Jesus Seminar remain controversial and contested in parts of the Christian tradition still today, but in many ways it represents the most public of endeavours to bring the scholarly tools of post-Enlightenment thinking to bear on this ancient faith. 
The motivation behind this project was to dig past all the layers of mythology and embellishment which the church has let build up over centuries, and to do this in public. I mean, this is history, and history doesn't belong only to the church. Whatever we are to make of the claims of and about Jesus, we shouldn't let that cloud the life, the teachings of the living and breathing man. And that, again, is what Crossan is so good at helping us recover. He's calling us. Hey, yeah. guess what's happening? Dominic Cross is calling me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting prank called by Dominic Crossan. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So we're talking today to Dominic Crossan. Welcome to Beyondering. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Lucas and Matthew, down under. <laughs> great that you're willing to speak to us. So thanks for your time. You've been a part of a significant movement, if you will, that's attempted to dust off Jesus and the message of Jesus. And that, yeah. that group is the Jesus Seminar. It's, yeah. it's been quite a while since you first founded that, along with some others. Yes. It's a very well-known international scholarly enterprise for those of our listeners that aren't familiar with it can you fill us in well what was and is the jesus seminar yeah let me be autobiographical for a second i mean between say i don't know in round numbers 1970 and 1990 i was writing only scholarly works for my scholarly peers that is no normal human being would ever dream of reading them and they were you know they were carefully designed so you couldn't so you wouldn't because they're they're they were bristly with machine gun emplacements <laughs> of footnotes and everything else. And that was pretty much the way scholarship was done. And it was quite all right. The churches had made a sort of a implicit agreement with scholarship. You guys go and do whatever you want in your learned journals and your weird seminars. Don't come out into the streets and scare the horses. So then what happened was the Jesus Seminar around 1985, and I was co-leader of it, Bob Funk was the founder. We said, wait a minute, this isn't right. We know we can discuss all of this stuff by ourselves. If I want to discuss in a scholarly article, do I think Jesus actually said the Our Father, the way you have it in Matthew, the Lord's Prayer, or was it made up by the early church as a good summary? All of that, I can do that. We said, that's not right that the educated lay people don't, don't know that we're doing this. It's as if doctors had decided, you know, 100 years ago, let's not tell the laity about germs. They'll never believe it. Let, let's keep it to ourselves. Just don't tell them. Don't tell them. So we, it was really an ethical problem. It really was for me. That's not right. And when Bob Funk said it, I said, yeah, yeah, you're right. So what we're doing, we're going to do in public. So we started the Jesus Seminar, whose function was to bring scholars together, uh, maybe 40 at a time at any given meeting, and to discuss a question, like I just mentioned, we deliberately wanted to do it publicly, of course. And when many fellow scholars said, hey, you guys are just out for publicity, we said, yeah, yeah, you got it. <laughs> of course. And it's, it's not particularly about ourselves. It really wasn't because being, being publicity is also a pain, as anyone who has it knows. Uh, so what we really want to do is say, we have to let people know what's going on. Now, a lot of people immediately, and I'm talking now of uh, <laughs> my friends, the theists and the atheists, are this, oh, great, they're destroying religion. They're destroying Christianity. They're destroying Jesus. And, of course, the right wing hated it and the left wing loved it. 
So a lot of my my own writing was received happily by people. See, he's marvelous. He's debunking Christianity. And all I was doing was good history. Because my principle was, you do good history first. Then out of that, you may get good theology. But if you got bad history, there is no way, no way you could get good theology. So did the real Jesus stand up as you sat around with some great scholarship, you bounced it around, what what Jesus emerged for you? Well, first of all, the, the key word that I would use, now I don't know if I used in those days, is the word matrix, because a lot of people would say, oh, come on now, you know, why do we have to talk about empires and Romans? Leave the Romans out of it. And that, you know, struck me as absurd, saying let's have a good history of Ireland, but, you know, let's skip the British. Yeah. And I've heard you well, use the example before of Martin Luther King. If you remove yeah. all the context, the matrix behind him, he looks yeah. very different if, you, if you're treating without understanding. It's absurd. You'd say, well, what's going on? I mean, he's a nice guy. He has a dream as far as I can understand. I don't see him doing anything wrong. How come they're beating him up and putting him in jail? It just becomes absurd. The only way you can explain it, of course, is obviously these people must be obscenely cruel. And so that's the way you explain the Romans. Obviously, Pilate is a, a cruel and the Romans are cruel. And that's a separate issue because they may have been cruel, but they didn't crucify people without a reason. So basically, the key word for me is matrix because it doesn't allow that nice distinction of context and text. And we're really good on text and forget the context. Matrix means all you have to know to know what's going on. It's the background you can't skip. It's the context you just cannot avoid. You can't leave the British out if you're doing Irish history. You can't leave the Romans out if you're doing first century Jewish history because somebody like Jesus lives in the lull, L-U-L-L, between a huge revolt in 4 BCE when 2,000 people were crucified around Jerusalem and a huge war in 66 to 74 when Titus crucified 500 a day around Jerusalem. Okay, you're in the lull as it were between two great rebellion wars. Now, you can't leave that out. It would be like trying to write the history of the 20s or the 30s and say, well, let's leave these world wars out there. Yeah, yeah, they're just the frames. We focus just on the 20s or 30s. It's, it's so absurd that nobody would do it. You'd be laughed at if you tried it. But we do it with Jesus all the time. Well, if we can zoom in to explore that a little bit more, it's a great time of year to be doing it. We're coming up to Christmas. We're about to sing glorious hymns. We're about to exchange presents and see nativity scenes. In light of what you were saying, that we often pluck Jesus out and put him into our context or a frame we're comfortable with, what are we likely to miss as we read the stories of Christmas? Well, the first thing we like to do is let's go with Luke and leave Matthew out. Okay, we like the Magi. So we, we like the Magi because they're great for performance and theater. So let's get them in. So we, we have a nice crib scene and it'll be kind of lovely. And we'll have the shepherds there because shepherds are not a problem. And the Magi are there. For, let's not bring in Herod. Let's not discuss the slaughter of the innocents. Let's generally speaking, leave Matthew out of it. And we'll go with Luke. Mm. It's such a it's such a sinister backdrop. I mean, when we think gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and the beautiful nativity scene, we don't yes. often appreciate such a sinister. I mean, you could picture if it was a Hollywood movie, yes. in a way it should be that the dark music would be playing, there'd be shadows and cloud emerging. So you're saying that there's this 
from the start a a collision course is set up and and an alternative vision is is about to emerge. And where can I buy the Christmas cards that have those pictures on it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, they're, they're called Matthew one and two and Luke one and two. If you know Luke Luke draws attention. Luke, generally speaking, is the more light. Uh, written picture. It's not as dark as Matthew, but Luke goes out of his way to mention this happened when Caesar Augustus, get it, like, was emperor. Why does he have to bother mentioning that? They, they bring in the Romans right at the very beginning, and the, the scene is, is, is set that there's the census. I mean, do I think there was a census? No. I don't think for a second was a census. And to make the argument for or against it is to avoid the whole issue. Luke goes out of his way to figure out, okay, how was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Because he's going to be the Messiah, and that would be the appropriate place, not the necessary place, but the good, you know, like we in America talk about Lincoln being born in a log cabin, and in, born in a log cabin now is a cliche for born of humble beginnings, you know, Every candidate wants to be born in the log cabin if they can, because it's a cliche. So born in Bethlehem means possible Messiah. So Luke thinks, how do I, how do I get to Bethlehem? I, all I know about him is up in, in Galilee. Census. Now, census sends up <laughs> red flares. And anyone who's reading this with a Jewish mind, census means Roman occupation. Roman occupation means everything that goes with that. So what we are doing is carefully eviscerating the stories of their challenge. Now, I, I don't mean that Christmas is not supposed to be a time of joy and gift giving and everything else, but it is. No, I'm, I'm not talking about the commercialization. That's a separate issue. But the gift giving of Christmas is a lovely association with the fact that a that somebody who tells us that violence will destroy us is a supreme gift. It is the challenge, I think, to our species because other species are protected by instinct. We're not. The only thing that stops us from really destroying the world or figuring, I don't care what happens, I'd be gone, is our conscience. So I read the Christmas story, not as a dark drama, but a kind of a warning yeah, yeah, you have been warned. Is I mean, I have the voice of my Sunday school teachers who might be turning in their graves when they hear the idea that the Bible isn't true or the stories aren't factually or historically true and are metaphorically true. Is metaphorical true less true? No, actually, metaphorical truth is the only truth we got because you cannot tell anything without interpretation. What makes us human is we interpret. I think probably since the Enlightenment, well, we really lost the capacity for metaphor. I mean, poetry doesn't sell. Let me be very frank with you. <laughs> poetry doesn't really sell. The better it is, the less it sells. If it's doggerel on a Christmas card or something, oh, that'll sell fairly well. But poetry doesn't sell because poetry is a world of metaphor. And as soon as somebody can say, anyone says, that's just a metaphor, we've lost. We're, we're really lost. The, the presumption is, and it is a presumption for many people, the truth is factual truth. And if you think of our newspapers, 
which generally speaking are filled with factual truth. There might be some editorial stuff there, but let's say they're considered to be factual truth. Uh, what happens to those newspapers in the evening? They go into the garbage. What lasts is the abiding metaphors of interpretation. I would say if you can't understand metaphor as part of history, because for example, their metaphors may not be ours. Generally speaking, all this shepherd stuff doesn't do much for me. The fact that we're all sheep, you know, doesn't do much for me at all. Um, I think of sheep as, you know, um, things that kind of do what they're told <laughs> a bit too much, uh, follow one another too much. So a metaphor could be outdated. For example, in the first century world, to say that Jesus is the son of God, that's a world of male primogeniture when the firstborn son or the beloved son or simply the son gets the family farm or gets the royal throne. So if I want to say heir, H-E-I-R, that somebody is the heir, I'm going to say he's the son. Now, if Paul is talking to a bunch of women and tell, trying to tell them, as he does in Roman, that you're the heirs of God, he's liable to tell them you're sons of God. We always say, wait a minute, how insulting to call female, why doesn't he say daughters of God? Because daughters of God guts the metaphor. The metaphor of, if you want to say heir in a, in a case of male primogeniture, you're going to say son. And similarly, if, if Paul wants to say you're all brothers, why doesn't he say brothers and sisters or, or sisters? Because in that world, brothers are always united. You have your own family, but if, if you're a brother, and you're in trouble, your first obligation actually is to your brother. That's not true for sisters. Sisters go off and marry different families. Their first loyalty is to their families. If I'm Paul talking to a group of Christians in the first century and I say you're all brothers, I mean you are all permanently responsible for one another. If I call you sisters, I'm not saying that. I'm just using a nice little expression. So I have no problem, for example, going to the New Testament, crossing out son and putting in H-E-I-R, heir. I have no problem crossing out father and putting in householder. I have no trouble crossing out brothers and putting in, well, I don't know what I'd put in, you who are responsible forever for one another in this community. I have, that's because you're doing good history, but it's also decoding what a metaphor means in that context. I've heard you say, too, that uh, when we look at, say, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we don't hear the story and then go, hang on, was there really a Samaritan? And, and you know, was it the Levite? Or, we're not yeah. doing that to the parable. We're, we're caused to have a different relationship to it. And, in fact, yeah. to get into the historical fact-based thinking would be to totally miss the parable. It strikes me, too, that so much of our talk about Jesus is to agree or disagree on who he was and what he did as opposed to ask the question of what does it call forth in me? What, what is my response in relation to this story? What are the gospel writers inviting us to in terms of that question? Yes. How do we respond? And I think, Matthew, you put your finger on something very important. It's not just that we're getting it wrong. It's that we're going out of our way to make certain we get it wrong. Because, because at the back of our mind, the back of our conscience is a feeling I think I know what I've been asked to do, and this can get you killed. <laughs> look, look what it did to Jesus. 
this is not just a sweet little invitation to come along. This, to mention we, something we said before, this is like Martin Luther King saying, do you want to come down to Selma? And that's not just getting a tri that's not just getting a, an airline ticket and going to <laughs> going to a, a town. That that's it's not a party uh, invite. That's not an invite to a, to a party. You're right. So, I think we do that very very well. Imagine this case. Suppose Jesus tells a good Samaritan, and the first you know guy raises his hand from the back of the crowd. Excuse me, Jesus. Excuse me, Jesus. I want to know did this literally, historically, accurately happen? And let's say the whole crowd breaks into a an argument. Listen, you idiot. It's a it's a parable, dummy. <laughs> Somebody said, no, 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 I, I've been down that road and it really goes down and I've seen a donkey and I know where Jericho is. And no, no, this, this sounds to me exactly like a, a piece of gossip. And Jesus is telling us something that happened. Yeah, I didn't know about that. I, 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 interesting, Jesus gives you a lot of little stories about stuff I didn't know about. So, <laughs> so what, what the whole thing would, and I can imagine Jesus tearing his hair out and his beard, because what they have done is quietly gutted the whole point of the story. And as long as we argue about that, it's not that it's invalid. I mean, the answer should be, no, it's a parable. Get on with it. So it's valid to ask historical questions. I will never say they're unimportant because it's very important, for example, to know, is the crucifixion a metaphor? Was it totally made up? Did Jesus exist? Maybe he's a metaphor himself. No, those are really questions. But they are not the only questions, and they are not really the most important questions. So the um, the stereotypical or the caricature Sunday school teacher that Matt mentioned who would say that unless you take the story literally, you're not taking it seriously enough. Yes. What you're saying is, well, no, actually, if you take the story literally, you're not taking it seriously enough. Exactly, Lucas. Exactly. And you're, the, the challenge is very, very clear. Jesus says the way to handle violence is, like I'm doing, Nonviolent resistance to it. Jesus is not a pacifist. If he was a pacifist, Pilate would have given him a pat on his back and say, have a nice day. What he was doing, and Pilate recognized this correctly, was resisting the Roman program. And for that, you need a public execution, but you don't need to round up his followers because he knows he's not violent. So Pilate got it right. <laughs> From Pilate's point of view, he got it precisely right. Had he rounded up, you know, the... 11 other disciples and crucified 12 of them in a row. No, he'd be treating them like a bandit gang or an armed rebellion or something. So Pilate did exactly what he should have done as a Roman governor to somebody who was resisting Roman law and order publicly, but nonviolently. There are, as you said earlier, there are some events within the life of Jesus that aren't intended to be taken metaphorically, and there are some that in the story that are. Where at Christmas time we sing carols about this perfect baby Jesus, and the song tells us no crying he makes. Now, if my baby didn't make any any noise, then I'd be taking that baby to the doctor. Why w was Jesus different to every other baby in history ever? And if not, why are we so keen to make Jesus different from ourselves? Well, I suppose it's part of that same program. The, let's call it the anti-program. Let, let's let say we really get the message. I, I'm, I'm convinced it's not that we've, oh, we've totally misunderstood. He just was really about something else. No, I think there's a, there's a consistency in our misinterpretation that tells me we are misinterpreting deliberately. 
We want to make it nice and sweet and lovely. And that will take away the meaning. I think this baby is a challenge to the world. One piece of your work that you did along with the late Marcus Borg that I greatly appreciated was some of the work you did around Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and, and the new take on some of the layers that perhaps we're missing with that story? Yes. The first thing we, we really interpreted as that this is a demonstration. And I'm using that in the sense that all of, you know, we know what that means today. Did we really think we or whoever, the moderns, invented demonstrations? If you read the story, Jesus says, go get the donkey. This is a setup. What I think has happened is he's invited by his Jerusalem, possibly in-laws, I suspect the, the people out in Bethany are part of his extended family from way back. Bring your message up to Jerusalem. Get off I mean, your ass it, and get the ass or something like that. Get, get on your ass, exactly. That's what they would have said. Um, get your ass down here. Um, <laughs> I, I think, no, I think that's the only thing that makes sense to me because everything reads like a settle. He... The, they probably said to him, and you'll be quite safe. You have enough people down here who are on your side. Come down at Passover. So what he does is, it's a, hilarious, we call it the triumphal entry. It's a kind of an anti-triumphal entry. It's a lampoon. He comes in riding on a donkey. And it may be in Matthew's text that it's even uh, the little colt is trotting along at her side. So we're dealing with a nursing donkey in case the demonstration is not Obvious enough, maybe this guy just was tired and you know, needed the donkey for the last mile. Let's put him on a nursing donkey with the coat trotting along by her side. And men do not ride nursing donkeys. <laughs> so this already sends a message. And I think the, the, the key to the give to the Mark's clue for us, for the, for the reader, is go get the donkey. Tell him that the Lord needs it. It's ready. Okay, we're ready for the show. You know, game on, as it were. So he rides into Jerusalem. Now, what Marcus and I did was said, okay, we know he comes in from Bethany, from the east side. That's a given. We know that Pilate lives at Caesarea Maritima. That's his base, his, his um, praetorium on the coast. We know that he comes up with an extra 600 troops, at least, to Jerusalem for Passover, because that's tinderbox atmosphere. Always a danger of a riot. They're celebrating deliverance from Egypt when they're under Rome. So all it takes is somebody in the crowded atmosphere of the temple to shout, why are we taking this? And you'll have a riot. We had two of them in the first century. Terrible riots during Passover. So what we did was say, well, if Jesus is putting on a demonstration, timing is all important in a demonstration. You don't do it in the middle of the night when everyone's asleep. So maybe he tried to coincide it with Pilate's arrival from the West. So we imagined. We put the two things together and we imagined kind of two processions. This is a lampoon, dangerous lampoon on the whole Roman system and a very personal lampoon on Pilate coming up for Passover. And remember, Passover is about freedom from empire, from Egypt. So the only question I would ask as a historian is why isn't he dead by nightfall? Why isn't he dead by evening? And the answer is, of course, evident from what's there because the crowd is on his side. And that's the logic of Mark's story, that the crowd is on his side, 
until they can grab them in the dark. That's why, you know, Thursday night becomes important, halfway between Jerusalem and Bethany, which is his safe, safe house, as it were. He gets out. Uh, by the way, as an aside, if Jesus is trying to get himself killed, if he came up to Jerusalem to get himself killed in our place, he really is doing everything wrong. To, first of all, to get out of Jerusalem to Bethany every night is exactly what he should do. Crowded city, dark streets, even with a full moon, people disappear. You don't even have to bother with the crucifixion. People just disappear. Out to Bethany every night, when he's in the city, Mark says again and again, he's protected by the crowds. The authorities want to get him, of course, because they know exactly what he's doing. It's dangerous. But he's protected by the crowds. So they, they have to choose between putting this rabble-rouser away or inviting a riot. Maybe, maybe just keep an eye on him, keep an eye on him, hope, hope he'll go home, get rid of him. So the, the whole story makes sense once you get those two processions, as it were, coming in on opposite sides. And that, in a way, was, I think, what has made that book used in almost every church's, churches here for Holy Week. You've painted a picture of Jesus that's so radically different to what we usually hear. A, a nonviolent protester, someone who's running active demonstrations. Who's a deliberate provocateur. Deliberate provocateur, yeah. yes. anti-empire. This is not a common picture, or perhaps it's it's just not the picture we're presented with. You, um, you're dusting off a, a Jesus that we've sort of layered with all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. What more can you tell us about the Jesus you know of? Do, do you think Jesus would have wanted to be worshipped? Do you think Jesus would have wanted a religion to be formed in his name? Well, it, again, you'd have to decide what do all of those words mean? Did Jesus want to be followed? Yes. Uh, followed, I mean, that's not the term. Did, did Jesus was convinced that this was a vision for the world and therefore it implied everyone, not just Jews. This was a vision for the world. And I think it is a vision for the world. Right or wrong, it is a vision for the world. And it's inept to say that Jesus was just a nice guy and he said we should love one another. Romans did not crucify philosophers. They crucified people who were activists. I mean, if they were rebels, of course, they crucified the whole, everyone that could get their hands on from their whole group. So Jesus really is, is terribly clear. That's not the problem. Is that why oh, you just can't understand Jesus? Can I live up to Jesus? Can I take the challenge? Can I even a little bit? Can I do 5% of this vision? That's, I think, what we have been carefully avoiding. And it's, it's, I don't care about the language. If you say, do I worship Jesus? I want to say, well, I'm interested in Jesus as an incarnate program. A program. He's not a philosopher who wrote books on nonviolent resistance in pure theory, and they could be perfectly valid, but you wouldn't get crucified. To go back to my illustration, if Martin Luther King had been an Emory University, let's say, a philosophy professor, and he wrote lovely books on the necessity of nonviolence, and it could be all absolutely true and valid, but I've no doubt he would have died in his bed. He'd been tenured and probably become a professor emeritus and die in his bed. It's precisely because Jesus is your term an activist, or I would even say my term a kind of an incarnate program. In other words, he just doesn't have a theory. He acts it out and says, quite frankly, so should you. 
Now, should, would I use the word worship? Today, I would not use that worship word. That's not, that's not our word. But for the ancient world, that might be the word they would use for committing yourself absolutely to a program. It, it is more than enough for me to say, I think this person embodies a way of life, a vision for the world, which if we do not get around, however we do it, we have no future as a species. Not trying to be dramatic or, or you know, apocalyptic or anything. I think it is simply the human experience that violence escalates. We have a situation where violence threatens the human species. Do you think that Jesus was unique in human history? Or was he one of many good people? What I see is that time and place are absolutely important. I mean, unbelievably important. As the the, cro the crosshairs of matrix for me are tradition and vision. By tradition, I mean everything you've been told as you're growing up is the way of the world and you take for granted. Vision is an angle that somebody takes on that tradition, shifts it around somewhere. We call it a paradigm shift. But time and place are necessary. For example, the secretary case of Martin Luther King. Why didn't he do it in the 50s? You know, why wasn't there a Martin Luther King in the 50s? There probably was, and he was lynched first time he opened his mouth. There is a time and there is a place. There's a window of opportunity. I think we, if you look at the Roman Empire, and I look at the, what you might call it, the positive side, you have a unified world from their point of view. You know, we could say, well, it's just the Mediterranean for, you know. But from their point of view, they talked about the world. Caesar holds in his hand the globe, the world. It's unified under a human being, Caesar Augustus, who is divine. Oh, wow. So travel is safe. Uh, the sea lanes are relatively free of pirates. The roads are more or less free of uh, bandits. And people are traveling all the time. So you, if you know Greek, you can get anywhere. So time and place make it possible. And I mean no more than possible for something to happen. That does not explain Jesus. But it does explain why Jesus wasn't forgotten and died out in the small hamlets of Galilee. Mm. Time and place are as important for Jesus as his own character and his own vision. I'm Beryl, and I'm a Rotarian. I've been going to my church for 70 years. Reading the Old Testament is worse than when I watch Game of Thrones. I don't mind the nudity. That's right. It's time for Beryl's Advocate. I've seen the Bible used in all sorts of ways in my time. As a devotional text a source of unquestionable authority, a weapon to harm or hurt people, even as a booster seat to help me see over the steering wheel when I drive down to the bowls club. But what is it really? So many people seem to want it to be this or that, but what do the scriptures themselves claim to be? Thank you for your question, Beryl. The first thing it's necessary to do is actually read them. I think more people, I'm not saying this to you at all, more people talk about it or know something about it than read it. When you read the Bible, the first thing that strikes you, it's kind of a story. It's a small library disguised as a book and it's presented to you as a story from beginning to end. It really is the history, or at least the story, of civilization's resistance to God. 
God's vision for civilization, which is given on the very first page in Genesis 1, which is not the first written, but the first put up there, that we are made in God's own image and likeness and put in charge of the world to run it the way God wants it. That's the first thing I read in the Bible. And it helps me to know, by the way, that that was chosen to be up front, not the first written. So the rest of the Bible really is how on earth do we get away from that? We're supposed to run the world as stewards, agents for God. And God, we've just been told, has set up the world so everyone gets a fair rest. That's the very first thing that's invented, rest, not food, not education, not even health, but rest. Everyone has a right to a rest. And of course, that's what gives us the Sabbath day and your draft animals have a right to a rest. Now, the rest of the Bible, in a way, is an attempt to say over and over again that dream of God for a world of justice where everyone gets a fair share of a world that we do not own, that we were supposed to run as God's agents. And again and again, that dream comes back. And again and again, very, very smart people, Israelites, Jews, and eventually Christians say, ah, hmm, okay, we will, we'll say that. We'll admit it. We, we, we won't censor it out. But boy, are we going to get around that. And just watch us do it. So it's a, it's a rhythm of what I call the heartbeat of the Bible, like an expansion, contraction, assertion, subversion. So the Bible is the history of civilizations struggle with God to see whose vision is going to run the world. Jesus comes with some fairly hefty labels, son of God or God incarnate. Um, There's words that are put in, that are in his lips in the gospels. And there's other words that disciples use for him too, and Lord and redeemer and liberator and savior. Um, What does it mean that these words are attached to Jesus. We read Jesus as the Lamb of God. Nobody I know takes that literally. Nobody thinks that means Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> ha, you know, ha, 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 ha. See, you know, mo- most people would be insulted if you said that to them. They'd say, don't be, don't, don't be rude. But when we call, uh, Jesus is the Word of God. Nobody thinks really he's in a dictionary somewhere. We interpret it. We come to son of God and all of a sudden for some, I don't know, male testosterone level, I have no idea why. Oops, that's literal. And so we take literally the story of Mary and the Holy Spirit. All of those make claims. That's the first thing. They do make claims. They're not just little quiet metaphors. Every one of those makes a separate claim, just the same way as to say that Caesar is the Lord. We can, we can all have our little local lords, no problem. The Romans were not excited about that. You can also have your little local gods, no problem. Do not say, as Paul does, that our Lord is the Lord. That's the line where treason occurs. As long as Paul says, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans say, that's lovely. Everyone should have their own little Lord. Just don't say it's the Lord or the Redeemer are the savior, are the son of God, or any of the, the, because every single term I can think of, I, except maybe Messiah would be one because that's purely Jewish, but every other term I can think of attributed to Jesus was already attributed to the Roman emperor before him, to Caesar Augustus. 
Everyone, Redeemer from sin was his. Savior of the world was his. We have the evidence. It's either on um, tombs or statues or poems or bas-reliefs. It's all over the Roman world. So every single word that we think was invented by Paul or made up by Christians or weird would have struck the Romans not as weird, but as treason. Which has huge implications if all those words are floating around the local water coolers yeah. and, as, and ascribed to Caesar Augustus, and yeah. all of a sudden this Jesus and his followers are using it for him. That's, that's massive. It's massive, and it's the right question, because then you'd have to say, okay, I under, uh, let's, me, let's me be an open-minded Roman in the first century, and I have no problem with miracles or anything else. I believe in wonders, and I all know all the stories. When you say Jesus is, excuse me, when you say Caesar is son of God and Lord, I understand that. He has saved the Roman Empire from savage civil war that almost destroyed us. He's brought peace, uh, prosperity, security. I, I, I see it all. I understand why you call this human being, by the way, I have no doubt he's human, who lives in a palace on the Palatine Hill in Rome, son of God, r r savior of the world. I get it. Now, I'm an open-minded Roman, so please tell me what on earth it means to call a peasant from the Nazareth Ridge in Galilee? I mean, I'm kind of laughing as I, as I ask my questions. This must be, this is kind of like a joke, right? This is like Jewish, Jewish humor or something. Uh, is that the whole point of it? And so from a modern point of view, you say, was that what happened that the, the Romans didn't get the joke? That Jesus was just making a little joke. Like, you know, if I dress up as a president and, and, and uh, ha, 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 it's, it's late night comedy or something. No, I mean, what, what exactly the Romans got immediately was if you take our, our titles, the titles, and transfer them to Jesus, you must somehow be saying, not your guy, but our guy is in charge. And no, we, we're trying to understand that. We, we see it's not a, a joke. We see it's not a, a, an armed rebellion because, because it's too stupid to be an armed rebellion. So what we see is that you are something we also know about. We, we would call it an activist. The Romans called it in their civil law, people who rouse the people, I think they call it, a person who rouses the people. Now, we're not talking about a... a, a, a armed leader. There's, there's no civil law about armed rebellion. You, you just send in the legions. Um, that's the right of the sword. But we, there are Roman laws that say if somebody rouses the people, accord, I'm quoting now, according to status, they will either be exiled to an island or crucified. So by civil law, we're talking civil law, that's exactly what you would do to somebody who is, in our term, an activist, who is rousing the people. For many people, they see, they view the way to follow Jesus is to believe certain things about him, to assent to certain ideas about him. That kind of, if you, if you like, leaves him in the past or leaves him up in the air above us. But what what do we need to do in response to this, Jesus? Um, what you've just said, Lucas, is very important because it's it's one of the great strategies for avoiding doing. Mm. I mean, it shouldn't be. I mean, believing should. If, if I went to the doctor and the doctor said, you need a heart transplant, I wouldn't say, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I believe. I believe. <laughs> the doctor would say, 
what do you mean you believe? I said, well, I think you're a doctor. You're probably right. Yeah, I believe. He'd say, no, you get in here at 5 a.m. on Monday morning or else. If I believe him, it means get to the hospital as fast <laughs> as you can. So it's unfortunate that we've, we've made the term believe to simply say, well, I assent to a theory. But I'm not going to get involved. I don't get involved. So what we have to say is this idea of believing in a theory, rather committing yourself to a program, is one of the other great magnificent strategies that we've been devising in Christianity since the fourth century when the emperor joined us. And we had the horrible problem of what do you do when you've been anti-imperial for 300 years and now all of a sudden you got a Christian emperor with a halo. We got a human being who's kind of divine down here on earth with the legions. And you got a human being who's divine up there in heaven with the angels. Who's running the world? So we started developing continuing strategies. They were not new, they've been worked on in the Bible. How do we get around this? And one of the great strategies is it's all about belief. All you have to do is believe. And then you go to heaven. At the end, you're checked out in your belief. Do you believe Jesus is son of God, Lord, and all the rest of it? Yes, yes, yes. Check, check, check in. It's, it's profoundly absurd, but also so clever. Mm. I, I honestly don't find any of this stupid. Mm. It's, it's magnificent strategies for avoiding commitment because it should be scary. Mm. <laughs> it should be scary to say, I'm a Christian because originally it meant high treason. And okay, we don't probably do that today. We probably would just ridicule somebody if they said it. But if you really start saying this is a program and we're starting to, to promote this program, it's a religious program, it's also a political program, it's social, it's economic, it's a package program. You're going to run into an awful lot of vested interests. And the question is whether we can, whether we can really convince people that what I've called our drug of choice, civilization's drug of choice, violence, is no longer viable. It would be it would be remiss of us to not ask the question very briefly. How do you view the resurrection? The resurrection is the supreme metaphor. We've been talking about metaphors. Uh, some of them are minor. Some of them are major. The resurrection is the supreme metaphor. It does not mean, let me put it negatively for a moment, but I do not want to, to insist on the negative because I think the negative comes in with the enlightenment. It does not mean Jesus came out of the tomb. I have no problem whatsoever portraying it like that. But I'm much more impressed by the idea, that not the idea, the fact, that in the entire Eastern Christianity, I'm not talking about Western Christianity, the classic a picture is Jesus coming out of the tomb, well-muscled. He looks a little bit like an athlete coming out of the gym, rather gorgeous, uh, but alone. It's all about Jesus. In the entire Eastern tradition, Jesus is bringing out Adam and Eve. Others as well, but Adam and Eve especially. His, his wounded hand grasps the wrist of Adam. Now, what on earth does it mean to have an individual resurrection of Jesus alone and a communal resurrection that takes the whole human race out with them. That's the West and that's the East. And the East, by the way, is in far closer continuity, naturally, I suppose, with the Jewish tradition, where the resurrection was never, ever, ever about one person alone. 
So whatever resurrection is about, it's not just about Jesus. It's about Jesus and the human race. And I think what it means as a metaphor is that we have just seen Jesus crucified by imperial power. That is the decision of civilization. People like Jesus should be crucified. The statement is that resurrection is the great vision of God's contradiction to crucifixion. God is not on the side. And the human race should not be on the side of, of Caesar or Augustus or crucifixion. What I would ask people to do is ask it this way. Why is the Eastern Christianity's vision of the resurrection? It's icon. If you just look, look it up on Wikipedia, put in Eastern, Eastern, Christ, Eastern resurrection or something. Why is Adam and Eve coming out of their tombs with Jesus on Easter Sunday morning. And did nobody notice how many empty tombs there were on Easter Sunday morning? If you take the East literally, because you take the West literally, of course you can't argue, well, one tomb, yeah, one tomb, whatever. But if you take the Eastern vision, there had to be thousands. We won't even get into millions, but thousands at least of empty tombs. Did nobody notice? So I would say you cannot take the Eastern vision literally. So what does it mean as a metaphor? Mm. If you are a Christian, you must believe in the resurrection. Does that mean literally? No, no. If you want to take it literally, that's your business. And if you want to take it literally, I will take it metaphorically. And then maybe we might like to have a discussion what it means for you. If you take it literally and it's just about Jesus, then so what? Mm. It's a special privilege for Jesus it doesn't tell me anything about the human race. You might tell me, well, that means that I'm okay too. If I believe in that, I get the same. Wow, that's a pretty shallow mm -hmm. theology. Mm -hmm. Jesus was raised from the dead so that if I believe in this, I get the same. Wow. <laughs> that, that's so shallow you couldn't even drown in it. <laughs> well, Dom, how about you give us a Christmas present for those on the fringes of faith, for those who have perhaps even lost a bit of faith in the stories of Jesus as they've been told them, can you recover Jesus for us a little bit? Sell us Jesus at Christmas. How would you how would you describe or sell Jesus? If I were to put it in an aphorism, I've said it this way before, I really see Jesus historically as a peasant with an attitude. But theologically, I believe that attitude to be the attitude of God, or to put it in another word, to be the vision for the universe. Is there anything else you can say about this beautiful vision and portrait Jesus has painted that perhaps you haven't already said? Well, the only thing I would say is very often I do get an objection from people, well, that's not spiritual. You're just talking history. And... All I can say is I cannot think of anything more spiritual or more transcendental or more supernatural, if I want to use that term. I don't like supernatural because that presumes the natural, but more transcendental than a human being living by nonviolent resistance to violence. It's probably way beyond my own capacity. And I think it's fine for all of us to admit that, yeah, probably that's dangerously close to what we can't do. And therefore is a challenge if we have to do it, if we have to do it. 
So I would really want to say, don't, don't find this not spiritual. Don't find this not transcendental. It's the point of which we find that the depths of our humanity and the heights of divinity might be the same. It's probably time for us to go. We're going to uh, go and rebrand some Christmas cards with some more biblically sound images. <laughs> Try, I, I've got a good one for a Christmas card. Try treason. you reckon that sells (laughs) yeah try trees and happy christmas (laughs) and we want to really thank you for your time and your wisdom and your passion and thanks for uh for offering it to us so uh yeah john dominic crossant merry christmas and thanks for coming beyondering thank you very much okay over and out thank you cheers find out more about Dominic Crossan, there's information and links at our website at beyondering.com.au. There's links to our Facebook page where you can join in further discussion. And that wraps up Season 1 of Beyondering. But we'd love your feedback to help guide us as to whether there should be a Season 2 of Beyondering and what that could and, and should look like. We really need to thank our guests for their just their wonderful contributions. We're so grateful for this fantastic list of people. For Jared McKenna, Dave Andrews, Val Webb, Meryl Blair, Walter Brueggemann, Bishop John, Shelby Spong, Michael Dowd, Fred Plummer, Carolyn Francis, Bruce Sanguin, Alex Sangster, Parker Palmer, and now John Dominic Crossan. One of the things we've been most pleased to do over this Beyondering podcast is to bring you contributions from uh, poets and artists. So we'd like to thank our artistic contributors, Cameron Simmons, Joel McCarrow, Heather Lynn, Dylan Joel, Mike McCarthy, Caleb Garfinkel and Dave Andrews. We really need to take a moment to thank Shaz Mullins, who's been the editor of this whole project. The hours she's poured into the editing process has been tremendous. So Shaz, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And for the hours spent holding our hands through the recording process, we say another huge thank you to Adam Ball. But that brings us to the end of Season 1. Make sure you jump on Facebook or sign up to our mailing list because that's the way you'll hear about live events and other bits and pieces that we release through Beyondering. You may even see us at Common Dreams in 2016. So for all of you that have come along for the journey, thank you so much and thank you for coming Beyondering. Beyondering is supported by the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria. Join the network, find resources and learn about upcoming events at pcnvictoria.blogspot.com.au and Common Dreams, an alliance of religious progressives in Australia, New Zealand and the South Pacific. Visit commondreams.org.au to learn more about the next Common Dreams conference to be held in Brisbane, September 16th to 19th. 2016. Edited by Shaz Mullins and technologically massaged by Adam Christmas Ball Ball. <laughs>